Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schiphol. And that is Steve Jones. And today on the podcast, we have uh, a person who has sold millions and millions of albums over his tenure uh, as a musician uh, for the past 25 years or so, and uh, has reached you know some amazing highs. And that's an insane amount of millions. That's just millions and millions. That's so many millions, right? Yeah, I can hardly even fathom one million. I know. You know and then more than that is just like, what? It's crazy because, you know, you think about something and doing anything a million times in your lifetime, you can never count to a million, right? Right. But yet, let's just use the number one million. A million people have heard you know, this per- person's music and paid money for uh, for that. I mean, that's huge. That's massive. Right? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's the same sort of thing with Concert Pipeline, right? Like, it's just, you think of the numbers and they're just astronomical. And it's, it's incredible just uh, how much of a following people have for music and podcasts and, yeah. uh, and our uh, guest on the program today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you get to these numbers and they're just absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm a math moron, right? So I'm trying to figure out if I can, you know, somehow conceptualize what a million is, I would think, okay, I've got this routine that I do every day. Let's say it's, it's, I brush my teeth, right? I brush my teeth twice a day. Like how many years would it take for me to brush my teeth a million times? You know, that way I can somehow, um, 500,000 Like years. grasp what a million is. 500,000 years. Yeah. 500,000 years. So I'd have to be 500,000 years old. To brush your teeth a million times. To brush your teeth. I mean... Unless you're counting each individual brush. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Look. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So like if brushing my teeth once was selling an album... Yes. I'd have to live that long. It'd take you a long time. To sell 500,000 albums. Yes. It'll take you some time. I think it'll actually take you longer than 500,000 years to sell a million albums, Jens. (laughs) Well, yeah, sorry. So twice a day, right? That's crazy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So we should say who we have on the program. Let's do that. It is Stephen Page, the former uh, lead singer of Bare Naked Ladies. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, So, and uh, um, we had Bare Naked Ladies on the program uh, last year, actually. Uh, We got to talk to uh, their um, bassist. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, about their upcoming album and, uh, and tour that they were doing and everything. And so uh, this is our second encounter with Bare Naked Ladies fame um, mm-hmm. on the on the program. And uh, he hasn't been in Bare Naked Ladies for nine years or so at this point. We What I really love is how open he was you know, just to talking about everything um, during the, the podcast. And I mean, you get to hear a really candid conversation that I had with, uh, with Steven at his, uh, show at Harlow's in, uh, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and some songs obviously from the, um, from the evening as well. Uh, he, he also plays, um, some bare naked lady songs as part of his set. Mm-hmm. So we'll play a bare naked lady song that he did, uh, as well as some of his solo stuff. Oh, sounds good. Now does he do the bare naked lady stuff kind of, you know, as a encore type thing at the end or does he sort of mix it up? Through it's, the spring- set or? it's sprinkled throughout and, mm. you know, and it's, uh, it's one of those things where he kind of embraces it. It's a piece of who he was. 20 years of mm. him as a musician was uh, Bare Naked Ladies. And he, these were people that he formed really close, intimate relationships right. with, you know, and the music as well. So he's, you know, 
he doesn't brush it aside or anything. It's obviously, um, obviously being able to say he was from Bare Naked Ladies has a draw to it as well. And mm-hmm. his, uh, sure, something that's something people recognize, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's that aspect, and uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually just a really fun conversation. So fantastic. We'll get into that in a little bit, but before we do, we got to talk turkey, Jens. We got to talk turkey. We recently survived thanksgiving week yeah surviving is a, a good word for it it's <laughs> a very good word for it and i am proud to say that i did not gorge myself like i have in previous years where i feel like oh kill me now you know yeah yeah so uh, so tell me about your thanksgiving how did your how did it go well um it was sort of like a threefold thing right so tuesday comes along and uh tuesday is my last day off before work. Um, and then when I'm working, I don't have a whole lot of time to really do anything else. Cause you know, I work like 10 hour days. Right. So all the stores that I normally go to, to go shopping are, you know, usually not open or I don't want to get up that early or whatever. Um, I had the bug, man. I had the bug on Tuesday. It was completely spontaneous. And I thought, fuck, I need I need to eat turkey. Like I need to make oh, turkey. You want to start early now? Okay. Yes, yes. And I'm not like this. Like I'm not a cook or anything. I don't really. You hide it well. Uh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I don't really don't get that excited when it comes to spending a lot of time in the kitchen yeah. cooking stuff. But for whatever reason, I got the bug, and I said, you know what? I'm going turkey shopping. So I went to Costco, and they had. A uh, a like a half a half a turkey like a ten and a half pound okay. turkey that was literally I think just kind of cut in half. There weren't any bones, um, but it was a leg and and half a breast, and uh, there was stuffing everywhere. And you could you know buy the sides individually, and it came with uh, you know the the the, the gravy. Um, and it was it wasn't pre cooked. I mean this was like raw yeah. so um i just i took it home and, and i just dug right into the it stuff <laughs> in the oven yeah. right and i called my wife and i said hey you know what i we're doing thanksgiving early what time are you going to be home i'm going to call the neighbors let's invite them over for like a you know impromptu feast yeah <laughs> i lost my invite by the way so yeah sorry man it was literally like last minute uh-huh. and uh so it was just the four of us uh-huh. um but the turkey did take longer than i thought that it would take in the oven uh-huh. you know um so we probably ate about an hour and a half later than we all wanted to but that was all fine but it was delicious was it it, was, it was really good it was really good i mean normally um, we'll get turkey at like Whole Foods or the Nugget or one of these, you know, grocery places yeah. that, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, uh, caters to those kind of people that want to throw a Thanksgiving party, but not really bake anything. They just want to, you know, heat stuff up. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. But this was better than, than, than that. It was, it was really good. And I've been eating leftovers twice a day ever since then. Oh, and I'm still go. not sick of turkey. Your breakfast turkey shake, right? Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Exactly. It's like, nope. You know what? I've got cereal, but I'm going for turkey. It's <laughs> the way to do it. You know, through the, through the straws. That's the way to right, exactly. that turkey. Yeah. So I think I could probably get away maybe another day or two, but then... Uh, I think I'm just going to have to throw the rest of it out, but it's almost all gone. So freeze that shit. If you freeze that shit. I know. Well, I have done that in the past. Uh You know, I've gone ahead and taken leftovers and frozen it thinking 
you know, in a month or something, we'll go ahead and, uh, you know, finish it or I'll just, um, if we have a carcass, <laughs> I hate that word. Um, but you can, you can make this great, you know, like turkey carcass soup. Yeah. Uh, which tastes amazing. So I'll freeze that. But I have yet to, to, to unfreeze the stuff and actually consume it because I'm just that sick of eating turkey, you know, after like two weeks, I can't see it again for another year. So you still have turkey in your freezer from last year is what? Well, no, but I, I will admit that, you know, it, uh, I have had leftover turkey frozen in the freezer for about four to six months or so Uh before I finally throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't eat it. You just, you're like, okay, this isn't happening. Yeah. It's like I'll open the freezer to get the ice cream Uh and I'll wonder what's that huge frosted ice cube thing blocking me from my ice cream. (laughs) It's like, Oh gross. This is the carcass soup from six Uh months ago. Uh Let's get rid of this. Probably not, probably not advisable to use. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, like I said, I'm not that experienced in the kitchens. I don't know how long this kind of stuff lasts frozen. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking six months is probably pushing it. (laughs) You don't want to, you don't want to find out the hard way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe it lasts six years. I have no idea. I doubt it. Yeah. I had kind of two Thanksgivings um, of sorts, actually. So um, I, I so my mom and sister, we were going to do Thanksgiving with them, um, with the kids. Um, my, my girlfriend, Tracy, the kids and I were going to go over there. But we did it. We were doing that on Friday because my sister had to work on Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, and so that was already planned. And I just wanted to get out, get the kids out of town. I was originally going to visit a friend in like Nevada mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, and see her and kind of just be out there. And that way I got out, you know, and the kids got to visit, you know, my friend Colleen, um, and everything, but then that fell through. And so I was going to, I was like, let's go, just go to the city. We can go to pier 39 or something. And then I was te- uh, texting with our, our friend, Tony, uh, you know, asking him what he was doing for mm-hmm. Thanksgiving and, uh, and he invited us over and I was like, okay, I'll check, you know, the girlfriend and see what we say. Maybe we can do it. And mm-hmm. it ended up happening. And so we went to, uh, Thanksgiving, actual Thanksgiving dinner at his, uh, his place with mm. his family and, uh, his, uh, parents-in-laws. Um, that's and, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And it was fun. And, and, oh my gosh, my daughter Fern just like got on so well with, with Tony's daughter. I mean, they had a, a blast together. That's there. what I was wondering. Cause yeah. she's, she's older now. Uh, I mean, not Fern, but, um, she's older too. Yeah. It, well, she's older. Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, there's has to be like some sort of, level of maturity among kids where they can, you know, they can have a good time together when there's such a big age gap. Cause Fern is how old now? She's eight, eight. And then Tyler, Tony's kid. Tyler is probably around that. 10. Is he, is, he's older, right? He's the, older. he's the older one. Yeah. But I honestly yeah. don't remember how old he is. Yeah. He may, yeah, I, I think, think he's, he's, he's probably older than Fern. 10. I asked the ages, but anyway. Yeah. But, um, their daughter is, is the younger one by I think at least two years or so. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice. It's nice to know that she's, uh, you know, growing up and able to play with Fern. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a good, I mean, great meal. They, uh, yeah, they, I mean, we brought some stuff that, that, you know, they obviously made the turkey and everything. Um, we brought Tracy's amazing cookies and, mm, um, and that must've been a big hit. It, it was, of course. Uh, uh yeah. we just devoured, uh, one each of yes. those just a few moments ago. And I can certify 
These are the most amazing of cookies ever. I know. Yeah, pretty great. And and uh, I made a dish as well, um, a potato dish, and brought some, you know, some drinks and everything. So it was, it was fun. And so then the next night, you know, kind of did it again, except at my mom's house. Uh, you know, went over there and hung out and played games, and uh, Tracy played the guitar a little bit. And, um, and Wait, Tracy played the guitar? She did. She plays guitar? She does a little bit. No way, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, she tinkers. Did, did she play like Stairway? What'd she play? Uh, I, she did not play Stairway. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think she actually played a full song because I think my mom got distracted and uh-huh. I mean, they, they were ready to move on to something else mm-hmm. or whatever. And yeah. I don't know. She Tracy wanted to know what they wanted to play, her to play and she mm-hmm. they didn't make any requests and so she just played for a few minutes and then I got put you. it away. So That's cool. nothing crazy. Mm. Um and so no one died. Uh, there were no casualties at my mom's Thanksgiving. Good, good. Nobody was at anybody else's throat. That did not happen during the Thanksgiving, no. Uh, so, so that was positive and overall, yeah, good, uh, good uh, Thanksgiving day. That's no, fantastic. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanksgiving is uh, Thanksgiving's fun. Um, it is a lot of work, though. I it mean, is, I remember. Yeah. Every year, just kind of being exhausted afterwards. It's like, that was fun. It was so great to have people over, great conversations. But you know what? Spending like half a day in the kitchen and organizing it all is just really exhausting. (laughs) So it's like, you've got to have... You've got to have the next day scheduled with nothing just to recuperate. Yeah, you know, from doing all that. And, and I've never cooked a turkey, so because I've never hosted a Thanksgiving mm. uh, at my house or anything. But I would recommend never doing that. Well, I will be doing it uh, for a friend's giving here in a couple of weeks. That's right. That's so, just around the corner. Because Tracy, Tracy got a free turkey from her friend, who actually will be joining our friend's giving. So nice. We're, we're cooking her turkey for her. Cool. <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> and yeah, I think I might make it like a potluck or something. I don't know. So other people bring dishes since it's it's Tuesday. Day and I'm gonna have to work. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna lose my mind if I have to, create, you know, mm. cook food for everybody and mm. and all that. So I have other folks chip, chip, chip in. Yeah, yeah. It's nuts. You know, it's like there are things in this world that I think are absolutely fucking ridiculous, like stuff that you can buy, you know, with money that you've earned. Yeah. You know, your hard earned money. It's like there's so much bullshit that you can buy that you don't need, like ovens that are dual, like dual ovens. Like who the fuck would want a dual, uh, pay the extra money to have like a dual oven in their kitchen? One just isn't enough. Who the hell needs that? Like one is enough, right? Yeah, except on Thanksgiving. Except on fucking Thanksgiving where like four ovens isn't enough. Yeah, because (laughs) Because you have like vegetarians that come over and they don't want their fish smelling like turkey so you can't put both of them in the same fucking oven. There's only one solution to that. I mean, don't invite Don't invite vegetarians. vegetarians. (laughs) Sorry, turkey's going in. It'll be dripping all over the place. I am not censoring the turkey. This is an experience. <laughs> exactly. Nothing. Nothing negative about vegetarians. I totally nope. understand the whole need for it. But you know what? They're you people invited. are high maintenance. <laughs> They're not invited. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like my kitchen isn't good enough to host you. Okay. And like you, your diet makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> yeah. You can bring your gluten-free shit from your house and uh, <laughs> right. Go pick up your pre-made turkey, fish, or whatever fish to- that looks like turkey. To- Tofishki. <laughs> Turkey turkey that's made out of tofu. Yeah. uh And soy and whatever. So anyway, you know, I so it's it's situations like that where I finally understand why these ridiculous gadgets are necessary in some situations. But yeah, I've had Thanksgiving dinners where I've had um, you know, our neighbors preparing stuff in their ovens at the same time that we're preparing stuff in our ovens just to make sure that um, everything is nice, you know, hot and warm and ready when everyone's coming over. So Absolutely. crazy. That's what I'm talking about, high maintenance. Yeah. You know what else is hot, warm, and ready? 
our beer. <laughs> no, our interview with Stephen Page. Yes, right, 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 right. This is a concert pipeline episode, so let's get back to the music. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, we're going to bring Stephen Page in just a second, but in true fashion, we like to play a song from the set before uh, the interview. So um, we're going to uh, play a song that Stephen pa- played at Hardo's, um, one of his solo songs called uh, Tonight's the Night I Fell Asleep at the Wheel, and then we'll get into the interview with Stephen Page. All right. Hey, I'm Stephen Page, and you're listening to Concert Pipeline. Driving home to be with you The highways to fight The cities in view
backstage at Harlow's with Stephen Page. Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Excellent. And uh, when do you guys get into town? We got in last night. We drove from Portland, so it was about a 10-hour drive. How was the show in Portland? Awesome. Yeah, sold out. Really great crowd. A lot of the shows on this tour have been um, seated audiences, which is a nice thing. Like, I think... When audiences reach a certain age, they don't necessarily want to stand for four hours on a concrete floor. But, right. But this was a standing show, so the energy level was that much more, too. It was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, for especially for this sort of thing, I think it's it's great to get uh, people standing when they can. But sometimes there's that in-between vibe of, like, do we stand or do we sit, right? Yeah. And then the people in front of you are standing, and you have to kind of partake with it. So. And I never mind. If people decide that they want to get up, that's great. But it's also because it's, it's a trio, so it's a little bit, like, you know, we only have percussion on a few songs. It changes the vibe a little bit, but it's not as um, uh, adult and loungy as that might, as a trio might lead you to believe it is. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you have Kevin and Craig uh, who are with you, right? Yeah. And so tell me about how you got with them, how the trio came together. Well, I've known both of them for over twenty years each. Craig, I met. I mean, he's he's um, guitarist, lead singer with the band The Odds, who have been one of my favorite bands forever. Yeah. I met them in 1992, I think. Uh, we were playing in Vancouver, and they were playing in a club down the street and came down to the venue where we were playing and said, do you want to come check out our band? Um, they already had their first album, Neapolitan, out by that point. We went down to see them and instantly fell in love with them. And I always thought they were they're kind of my ideal when it came to what a, a four-piece rock band should and and could be and you know kind of classic power pop but uh you know with, with all the great senses of harmony but really also the great sense of of um rock and roll abandon too um so they toured with bnl a lot in the early days in the you know the mid 90s um and then when i split from bare naked ladies in 2009 uh i started writing with craig right away and he and i co-produced a couple of my records and we were doing duo shows across Canada. Um, Kevin Fox on cello, I met him when he was playing bass for Sarah Harmer, when she opened for us on our, I think it was 2000, 2001 tour. Yeah. Um, and I was always just so impressed with his um, his passion on stage. You know, it's not his music. He's a singer-songwriter himself, an arranger, and a, an amazing cellist and vocalist. But, you know, being in somebody else's band, he always sang and played as if it was his own music. And that always really impressed me. And one, the first thing I did when I split from BNL was um, call him and see if he wanted to do some shows with me across Canada. And we did um, folk festivals from coast to coast. And so I'd been doing both those kinds of duos for several years. Yeah. Um, and when the last record, uh, Instinct, came out in 2016... I thought, why don't I try and merge these two duos into one trio and uh, kind of use the best of both? And that's what we've been doing ever since. Yeah. So let's go back kind of to the beginning. Yeah. I, w- I want to know kind of about your family and your upbringing with, with music. Your, your dad and brother uh, played drums, right? Yeah. And so music was always kind of there in your household, I imagine? Yeah, for sure. My dad played drums in like, you know, wedding bands, party bands, kind of that thing. But he was, I guess, trained as a, dra- as a jazz drummer. And... Uh, but there was always a kit in the basement. Um, you know, he'd make me play piano, take piano lessons, and I was terrible at it. And I you did it for like 10 years, right? I know. But you said you never le- like learned anything from it. Never got good at it, and I always hated it. And he would always tell the teachers, like, he's not, he's probably not going to practice, but he's going to take the lessons. Yeah. You're going to have to be okay with that. And uh, that's kind of what happened. But the thing that he taught me the most was, you know, uh, 
he would make me sit there in front of sheet music. You know, I'd have whatever whatever pop sheet music of the day was, and standards and all kinds of stuff, uh, show tunes, whatever. And he'd sit behind the kit and make me play and sing. I'd have this wire coat hanger around my neck holding a microphone through an amp and I'd be trying to plod my way through these songs trying to figure out what the next chord was what the next note was and he would just hold the time down and wait for me and it taught me a lot about what it is to play with other musicians what made you stick with it for 10 years was that a personal decision or no I think it? he made me do it yeah, he did it the whole 10 years <laughs> yeah. he's like you're doing this yep yeah. and then when I was in high school I started singing in, in choirs and stuff and I picked up guitar a little bit but Guitar for me has always been just a tool to accompany my 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 own songs, yeah. as opposed to being kind of an instrument on its own. Yeah. So you you enjoy the guitar. You that's an instrument that you actually you gravitate towards. Obviously, you've played it for a long time as well. Yeah. And actually, in piano, I've gone back to now. I, I've I've written a bunch of songs on the last couple records on piano, especially on this last one. And I'm actually playing it live now. Um, and it feels a little bit less foreign. Yeah. You know, it's still, I'm still kind of finding my way around it, but it's, uh, it's not, as, not as clunky as it once was. Where did that decision come from to pick up the piano again? Some of it was that I was writing music for theater, and piano helped me get out of my usual patterns, chord patterns that I would fall into with guitar. And also when I'm writing stuff and I'm trying to harmonize or write counterpoint uh, for other instruments, not necessarily voice, piano is the easiest smartest way to, to do that, to be able to map stuff out. So I found myself sitting in front of the keyboard a lot more um, and realizing that it was taking me in uh, harmonic directions and, and chord changes that I wouldn't have otherwise chosen. Yeah. And do you typically like write the music first or is it the lyrics that come, come to you and then you kind of work your way? Usually I get a snippet of both. Like So it's a couple lines that are music and lyrics all together. And then I'll usually build the music around that and then it's about filling in the lyrics. That takes me the longest. Yeah. And so you you and Ed knew each other from like, being in the Gifted Kids uh, program, yeah. right? So tell me, uh, before we even get into Bare Naked Lady yeah. stuff or anything, like tell me about the Gifted Kids program and how that affected your childhood. Like, was that... Well, you know, what it meant was, you know, we had to do, obviously, a series of, of testing and so on. Um, and I had already skipped a grade in elementary school before that, so I was a year younger than everybody else in my class. Um, and they eventually shipped us off to this gifted program, which was not far from the house, but it meant we had to ride the short bus. And uh, you get there, and the classes were much smaller, and the kids were all kind of uniquely geeky in their own ways. And so it was, in some ways it was really good because uh, we had something in common, and... and we also had different learning styles. Mm. Um, you know, my parents' fear was always that they would just kind of lose me, that I'd drop out of the system if I stayed in the regular stream. But socially, it was it was weird. I mean, I had my own small group of friends, but it kind of alienated me from the rest of the kids in my street and the rest of the kids at the school and so on. You know, you certainly... Um, everybody else seems to think that you think you're better than everybody else and you spend all your time trying to prove to them that you're not better than anybody else. How'd you get past that? Like, I still haven't. I no, still, no. no, I think my own sense of self is, uh, is, is kind of uh, messed up by that in some way. Yeah. The idea of you know, being special and also not special is, uh, is a conflict that's also it's in my music a lot. Yeah, yeah. So do, I mean, the friendships that you kind of form now, obviously, I mean, you 
I imagine you've been able to grow in different ways because you're, people grow up, you're adults, you're, you, you don't hold on to that. But when you're a kid, you know, that sort of thing can divide you, right? Yeah. I mean, I was a kid that, you know, uh, was always the new kid in, in schools and I didn't operate well, you know, yeah. uh, w uh, with that, you know, but, but I grew out of that uh, at some point. Right. Yeah. You do have to learn eventually how to be social. Like, you know, I did that a few times where I moved for a year or changed schools, whatever else. And I was often known as the kid who doesn't speak. Like I would just be silent kind of on my own. And, uh, you know, it comes a point, you know, being in a band really helps because I was never a sports kid. So I didn't understand the value of being on a team, but yeah. it very much a band is like a team and, uh, at its best, everybody's aiming for the same goal together and, you have each other's backs and you become kind of a social unit. You have this social uh, system inside the group, but also how you relate to other bands and other people in the industry and your fans and whatever else. Um, once I found something like that to really believe in, which I did with Bare Naked Ladies, that I became, you know, I was the guy who made all the calls to club owners and agents and other bands, managers and publicists and whatever else to try to get us heard or get us gigs because I believed it. So it really did make me come out of my shell in a lot of ways. And was Bare Naked Ladies like your first band? Yeah, really. I mean, I did a, I had a, a band where we only did a couple gigs, but we had a, a, a lot of songs. We had a cassette of songs, this group called Scary Movie Breakfast. But it was kind of, it was kind of the archetype that, that, BNL followed because it was two guys just as Bare Naked Ladies was in the first few years, acoustic um, it rooted in you know, folk mixed with a bunch of other things, punk and uh, and bluegrass and um, uh, avant-garde and then when I moved over to Bare Naked Ladies with Ed um, the R&B and hip-hop influences started to make their way into that as well and I want to ask you about the the comedy influence uh, that's a part of Bare Naked Ladies because I think that's something that separates you sure. from uh, a lot of different bands. Like, was that something that was from the beginning planned? Was that something that build was building? You know, they kind of grew into it. It was how we related to each other. And I mean, when I first started performing with with Ed Robertson, um, the way we kind of hooked up was because he had approached me at a music camp that we were both working at and he was singing one of the songs that I had written with Scary Movie Breakfast so he had a copy of that tape mm -hmm. um, so even then the, the, you know, those songs had a sense of humor um, so that was in initially how we connected but that and harmonies were the two things that really made us love what we did and that's how we related to each other all the time it was with jokes and that was like that was the fun and the pleasure of, of being around each other and so that was just an honest extension of that on stage. And when you guys went in to kind of make your first album, did it feel natural? Did it, or did, like, tell me about the kind of the kinks you had to work out and overcome. Well, you know, we had built up the band into a five piece by that point, And, you know, we had done a couple indie cassettes that had done well. Yeah. But we had a huge, you know, we'd done a lot of live shows. We were playing, you know, five nights a week. And sometimes it was two gigs in one day. And, and, uh, you know, we would just jump in the car and drive from Toronto to Ottawa, which is four and a half, five hours, and do a gig, drive all the way back to Toronto right after the gig and play Toronto the next day. And that was the kind of um, enthusiasm we had for it and commitment to it. So by the time we finally had the ability to make a record, it felt like a playground. It just felt like it was like, it felt important to me, like it was like what I'd always dreamed of. 
Um, so it was a chance to do all the things that we couldn't necessarily do on stage. Um, you know, it felt like the opportunity to make our own Sgt. Peppers in some way, but it was also a chance to show what we were capable of and what we'd learned in that time on the road. Yeah. And speaking of Sgt. Peppers, you've tell me about kind of the, the Sgt. Peppers project that you did. Uh, it was just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, I've done it a few times. Yeah. Um, I work with this group called the Art of Time Ensemble out of Toronto, which is led by a classical pianist named uh, Andrew Barashko. And he called me about 10 years ago to do uh, a show they call their Songbook Show, which is kind of a, re- a revision of the great American songbook. So rather than doing standards, Cole Porter and uh, Rogers and Hammerstein and so on, I got the opportunity to choose a dozen songs that I'd always wanted to sing and got to choose songs from Elvis Costello and Leonard Cohen and uh, the Mountain Goats and Radiohead and uh, the Magnetic Fields and all over the map that way. Um, and we did made a record of that and did a bunch of concerts of it and a few tours, did another tour of it earlier this year. Um, and then, uh, actually, the first project afterwards that he called me for was to do a, um, I guess it was a 40th anniversary of Abbey Road. And so they had a re- Abbey Road arranged for the ensemble, plus four singers, and it was all done by different contemporary composers. So all every song had a very different uh musical interpretation of the songs. The only thing that stayed the same were the melodies. So the vocal parts are like the Beatles. Yeah. But the instrumental parts could be all over the map. Some of them are quite crazy and avant-garde and some yeah. are really fun and, and uh, some are really jazzy. Um, and that was such a success that uh, when the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's came around, uh, we did that and we made a record out of that and toured it quite a bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's really cool, and that's something I like about you know when bands do you take some creativity with covers because, I mean, just as an example, the new Weezer song, you know, I mean, right. it it sounds exactly like Toto to me, right? And I'm like, that that doesn't connect with me. But when I hear a band that kind of takes some freedom without destroying it, that's right. I think you got you have to honor what the song actually is. Yes. So like the melody is important, although you know you're listening to. Ella Fitzgerald do a uh, Cole Porter song that Tony Bennett also does, and they sing melodically. They go to different places, or you know, Aretha would do this. You know, she'd go to different places uh, melodically than maybe the original composer did, but it still has the, it's still the same song. Um, you know, the difference between um, you know the the Beatles. Eleanor Rigby and uh, Ray Charles' Eleanor Rigby and Aretha Franklin's Eleanor Rigby are significant, but they're the same song. And I think that they all show the honoring of what the song is and also the expression of who that artist is and what they bring to it. Yeah. And that's what I love to do. And it's working with Art of Time is, a, is such a great honor because all the other musicians on stage and all the composers, arrangers, are like top the best in, in their field. And when I first started singing with them, you, you, as the kind of the non-legit guy, you feel a little bit self-conscious. And then you realize, inside of that situation at least, that you're all there for the same purpose. You're all there to bring the thing that you do to the stage. And, that, and once you're all there to embrace that about yourself and each other, it makes it a really exciting experience. Yeah, for sure. 
Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the rise with uh, Bare Naked Ladies. Uh, I, I heard about a Hertz uh, rent-a-car performance mm-hmm. that you did. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. That was, uh, I think that was in Vegas. Um, it was either in Vegas or Reno. Um, I remember, yeah, when, we, when Gordon first came out, the record company sent us on this kind of dartboard tour of America. I'm trying to remember if we came to Sacramento even where we are today. Um, but we would do like these... You know, anywhere that, where there'd been maybe a college station that was playing Be My Yoko Ono, they would send us. So we were playing like a bowling alley in Nogales, Arizona, and uh, outside of a car stereo place in Fresno. And um, one of them was outside of a, it was actually the Hertz. It wasn't even a rent-a-car. It was like where you buy from Hertz, like the old ones that are off the Hertz oh, really? rent-a-car lot. They're really ready to sell. And it was like, we showed up thinking it was going to be live on the radio. And there was like a DJ who said, well, we've got bare naked ladies down here. Come on down. And then they would just go to the radio station. Yeah, like they never played us. They didn't even do it. And we'd be playing. And the audience consisted of the DJ, somebody selling hot dogs in a hot dog cart, and uh, one guy in a wheelchair. And then as we're singing the song, uh, somebody inside the office comes out and closes the door so they can't hear us in there anymore. <laughs> That's when you think, yeah, we're not really making it right now. Yeah. So what put, what drove you to continue on? Just the need, the the passion for the music? I think there was a sense of self-belief. I think, yeah. I think, especially in your early days, you have to have almost a psychotic belief in what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, if you don't think that, like, it's going to happen somehow and whatever the it is, it doesn't necessarily mean number one on the charts or biggest band in the land, but the idea of being able to like do it for a living, which is what I've been able to do for 30 years, that kind of dream and that belief that you're, that you have something interesting to say to people, um, has to kind of pervade every, every moment of your life. Otherwise, if you doubt it, and you're just going home. Can't dip a toe in. You got to go all in. Yeah, because I think otherwise, like, there's be there'd be no reason to go out and do that. It'd be just be heartbreak after heartbreak, and not it'd be hard to find any uh, validation. Yeah, and and so tell me, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? I do. I remember it was there was a, a radio station in Toronto that used to do uh, once a week an indie hour, like local indie musicians, and we were we had done a sound check. We were playing a gig that night. And we were driving down to go see Andy Cregan, who used to be in the band as our keyboardist and percussionist. He was playing with the Toronto Symphony Youth Orchestra then. So we were probably like 19 or 20 at, the point, at this point. And uh, we were driving down to go see him play with them before our set started. And uh, as we did, this song of ours called Trouble with Tracy came on the radio. When I was driving my dad's truck, and I remember driving down the street with all our windows down, yelling out the window, that's us, that's us, as if it mattered to anybody right, else, yeah. But yeah, it was amazingly exciting. Yeah, were your parents, like, proud at that, at totally. that point? Totally. Yeah. My parents were so proud that, that you know, we had at that, that point an indie cassette, which was a five-song demo that yeah. we'd made, essentially just to take down to South by Southwest. Brian Wilson on it. Yeah, if I had a million dollars. Yep, yep. Um, it was really just a demo to take to South by Southwest and we had some left and we're selling them off the stage and there became a demand for it. Retailers started calling me asking for copies of it. Um, but the demand became so big that we couldn't afford to pay for the duplication and the distribution. So my dad said he had had no experience in this at all. He was a school teacher. Um, but he said, I'll 
I'll invest in it. I'll, I'll pay for that up front. Uh, if you give me a royalty for it and I'll, I'll do all the distribution. And he started this indie record company that lasted about 10 years doing, putting out all kinds of different bands. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I remember my first time seeing you guys was, I think, probably 2000 uh, at Shoreline, I think, mm-hmm. with Guster. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, th- that was the most, I mean, at, at the time for me, like my favorite concert I'd been to because you guys just committed your, I mean, such a great live act as well. And, sure. And it was just I mean, it, it really connected. So thanks. Yeah, we used to do like little video bits and stuff uh-huh. then. And yeah, it was lots of those shows were great. I loved doing that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your solo stuff. Um, a singer must die. Like that is. I mean, I mean, that was your. Uh, was that your first separate separation from? Yeah, I, I had done the the Vanity Project a couple of years before I left the band. Yeah. And then Singer Must Die was the first thing that came out after I left. Yeah. yeah. And that was just, I mean, it's so different from anything Bare Naked Ladies. And I love the ensemble that, that was with it. And yeah. just, it's, I mean, it was pretty incredible. So, Thanks. So tell me kind of where that came from for you. Well, that was that's the art of time that, that I've done the the Sgt. Peppers with and so on, and that was the, that initial concert that they had asked me to select a bunch of songs for, and uh, you know to come up with a list of songs that I'd always wanted to sing was uh, I mean daunting because there's tons of them, um, and you know I sent them had them sent them off to all the different arrangers and come, they come back and they're you know some of them are, are quite traditional and some are quite uh, quite different from what. I was used to hearing those songs as it was a real challenge, but just yeah, to be able to use my voice in a different way than I had before was liberating and exciting and nerve wracking. And, uh, yeah, it's something I'm really proud of. Yeah. And so how does, how is, would you say your approach has changed from writing for yourself versus writing for uh, a a band and partnering with someone who's kind of an equal collaborator of sorts, right? Like, yep. It's, you know, when I, when I, it took me a while to realize, but as a solo artist, being solo doesn't necessarily mean doing everything alone. Yeah. It doesn't have to. You can, and I do a lot of stuff by myself, but so much of what I do is still collaborative. It just means I get to choose who and when and for how long and in what capacity I collaborate with people. So even you know with the trio here or when I'm co-writing with... Craig Northey, or when I, you know, used to co-write with Ed Robertson with Bare Naked Ladies, or Stephen Duffy, um, I always treat those as partnerships. Um, when I hire musicians to play on a on a song, there might be a specific thing that I want to hear them play, but like when I have musicians come out on the road with me, I don't, I don't want them to just cover what was on the record. I hire them because I want them to I want what they bring what they as individuals bring as musicians um, so I'm always open to everything changing all the time because yeah. I, I love what other people can bring to what you do yeah and so with uh, Heal Yourself that started you you went into that and you'd kind of planned for that to be a two-part mm-hmm. well double uh, CD right? yeah. double album I wasn't sure what it was going to be it was so many songs and I thought either it's going to be a double album or it's going to be a bunch of EPs or it's going to be two records and I realized two records kind of fit the best for yeah. different reasons you know one was um, what if I put this all out and it all disappears tomorrow um, that's a waste of 30 songs uh, the other thing is um, it's a lot to ask an audience to to listen to and get to know all those songs at once it seemed a little self-indulgent to me um, and I'm really glad I did it that way because by the time I was ready to work on part two and finish it off, I kind of thought it was finished. 
then I realized that I had a bunch of new material and some stuff that had kind of dropped off that didn't feel as fresh to me or I wasn't, wasn't feeling as attached to anymore. And I could really make the second part equally a reflection of where I was at at that point. Mm-hmm. And so those songs that kind of dropped off, I mean, do you do you hold on to it? Do you, do you come back to it and say, hey, maybe there's something here to be released later? Or is it, do, you, do you just kind of scrap? I don't, I don't scrap stuff that often. I mean, there are some, like, there are songs from here and there, both from solo times and even Bare Naked Ladies stuff that just never saw the light of day that I kind of think it's not necessarily worse than anything else we did. It just didn't fit. Or when we had to choose between two songs, it was the one that lost that I would always be happy to see it resurface in a different way sometime. Um, You know, these songs also on these last two records of mine are a lot of them are part of a musical that I've written with a Canadian playwright named Daniel McIver. So those, some of the songs that have not made it onto these records still have a significant place in the, uh, on the stage in the in in the musical, yeah. And your wife Christine did the album artwork for both of mm-hmm. um, both parts of the uh, album, right? Yeah. So, how much of a process? I mean, is kind of that relationship in terms of the album? Like, did she listen to the album and be like, "Okay, this is the vision"? Or yeah, she'll ask me questions and stuff. And I'm always because I when I'm making a record, it's really hard for me to say what it's about because I don't know yet. Yeah. Like I'm still just living inside of it. She gets really used to hearing the same bars looped over and over again as I'm working on, you know, trying to play a guitar part or something like that. Um, you know, she loves the music, um, but she also knows me better than anybody else. So, you know, for this latest record, she came up with the idea for the album cover very quickly on her own, just from kind of what she had heard of the record. And she asked if there were specific things I wanted in that collage to, uh, to represent things on the record. And I really wanted, again, like I was saying with, with musicians, I want to see what they have to bring to it. I'd rather hear somebody else's um, interpretation, and I can always say no. And uh, I think she really hit the nail on the head with it. Yeah. Now, on this tour, you, I mean, you and, and in general, I mean, when you when you tour, you do uh, tailor the audience. You do play some uh, Bare Naked Lady oh, songs yeah. as well. You're not you know, opposed to talking about it at oh, all no. from anything I've heard. And it's it's a piece of you, right? It's exactly. Not, it's just, it's as much a part of me as where I am at now. Yeah. 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 And uh, so kind of going back to that, that point where the separation was, you, you said the band was no longer the joyous place it, it uh, once was, but, but you do still enjoy the songs and you have positive memories from those songs. Oh, yeah. So. I, we have. Well, and and positive memories of the time together. We, I mean, we had so many huge moments in our lives and grew up together. So there, you know, really momentous things and big changes, um, and also just you know, it's constantly hilarious memories. That you know, so I'll see something and remember being in that town with the with the guys and something hilarious that happened. And that stuff always pleases me. And uh, um, yeah, the music. I'm I'm. Very proud of everything we did together. Yeah. And being, you actually reunited with the guys uh, for the Juno Awards uh, yep. earlier this year. For you, was, that, was there any nervous piece of that or did it kind of going into it? Did it feel natural? Oh, I was really nervous at the beginning. I thought, you know, who knows? Because I really hadn't talked to the guys. And, you know, there was, you know, as much as you try to make anything, whether it's a divorce or the end of a band or end of a business. That's what I wanted to compare it to as a divorce. Oh, that was the closest thing, too. I think people I think people who don't understand, you know, people who just, you know, whatever, online will say, 
just go back to the band. It's, it's like, not that easy. No, you can't, I mean, it's, it's hard to even yeah. go back to an old job. Yeah. Never mind going back to an old spouse. And I think as much as we were like brothers, we really were like spouses in a, in a lot of ways. And so, so there are so many things, so many intimate things that are, that are brought up when you think about being back with those guys. And I think they must feel the same way about it with me. Um, but I also knew like, you know, I've got three kids with my first wife and we had bar mitzvahs for all three of them and we all made it work and they yeah. were, it, it, you know, we could do it. it you could be amicable. I'm, I'm the same way. I have an ex-wife as well and we have two kids and we're amicable, right? It, it wasn't amicable when we first broke up, yeah. and, but we learned to make it that way, you know, partially for the kids and partially for ourselves in order to like, why be, why spend your time being angry or, or upset when, or hurt or any jealous or anything else when you can um, celebrate what you did together and be supportive of what you do in the future. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, with the BNL guys. That said, yeah, I was really nervous going in and then got there and it was fine. It was totally fine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being on, on stage with them was an absolute pleasure. Yeah. You know, I still felt like an, an outsider, right, which is right. a funny thing, an outsider inside of kind of my own songs in a way, but I also felt great joy. Yeah. Do you envision now that it's happened once any more amicable? Uh, it just kind of let, I'm let open it flow to it. as it fl- flows, right? Yeah. If, if it happens, I, I'd be open to it, but it's not something I'm actively pursuing. For sure. For sure. Um, and so you, uh, you mentioned your three sons. Uh, are they musical? Do they have they any interest in... Yeah. My eldest is in grad school right now doing his master's in orchestral conducting. Wow. Yeah, so he's more legit than me. Yeah, that's he's huge. Better than me, he's amazing. <laughs> and then my my middle son is uh, a junior in college doing uh, musical theater performance. And he's an amazing performer. You know, your triple threat of acting, singing, dancing. Mostly, he sees himself as a singer, but he's um, he's also a really great songwriter too. Um, like, yeah, he's written some really wonderful stuff. My youngest uh, has done a ton of musical theater stuff, and he's got a gorgeous singing voice he um and he's a beautiful actor too but he's trying i think he wants to do something different from his brothers so yeah. who knows what he'll end up doing maybe writing or something he also but he also does you know i think a lot of kind of programming beats kind of stuff that i don't understand yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i imagine they grew up going out on the road with you yeah. and living life on the road seeing yeah. all you know the, the world right I mean, well then that's what makes me proud is that they saw i mean they saw me at, at my most successful but they also saw me without the band and yeah. and wondering what was next and reinvent they, yourself yeah, and, yeah all the doubt and uncertainty out of that um both you know emotional and financial and everything else and they still are willing to take the risk. I think they, they're so well aware of what the risks are of uh, a life in the arts and it didn't scare them off. In fact, it made them feel like it was possible. That's really, that's really cool. I think. Well, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and that's a great thing to be able to hand down to your, your kids, yeah. you know, your, your passions and them to be able to kind of take it and do what they want. with That's it. right. And also to do something different with it, but it's still yes. connected. Yeah. Now, as as we wind out, I just uh, I'm curious. You, I mean, you're on a little string on through the Bay Area here. You're yep. gonna hit Santa Cruz and then um, uh, Berkeley, Berkeley. Berkeley yeah. yeah. So, um, in looking back on your t- uh, time, either with BNL or solo, mm-hmm. like what are some of the venues? What are some of the experiences from the Bay Area that you remember and enjoy? Well, I mean, the most, the biggest one was when we did the Bridge School at Shoreline. Um, ninety eight. Ninety eight. I mean, because I mean, I've seen 
I've probably seen Neil Young live more than just about any other artist, like except for maybe artists at a club level. Yeah. But as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult, through my life, he's been the most consistent. And to get to go there and go to the ranch and spend time with him and also REM were on the bill and, you know, Sarah McLaughlin, who we were friends with, um, I got to meet Mark Eitzel from uh, American Music Club, who are one of my favorite bands. He's one of my favorite singers, and he was there. There's so many great memories of that 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 will always stick with me. But, uh, you know, I other other venues like playing... Well, the first time we played the Bay Area was Great American Music Hall yeah. with, with John Wesley Harding, Wesley Stace, who's opening for us tonight. Nice. So it's really cool to do this. You know, our first U.S. tour was opening for him. So to have him on my tour is a real treat, nice way to reconnect and have fun. And I remember a, f- a gig at, it was called Bottom of the Hill. Bottom of the Hill. Where the yeah. power went out oh, in the middle of the gig. It was memorable, right? Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not about the power going, it's yeah. about how you cope with it. Yeah. And you kept the gig going while the power was out. And I think anybody who was there will always remember that gig. Yeah. yeah. I imagine you've played the Fillmore. Yep. Well, many yep, number times. of times, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I love the Fillmore. Yeah, That's it's my a great place. Just so much history there. It's, yeah, it's amazing. And yeah. I love seeing shows there. So, uh, awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to your your show tonight. Well, I so. hope you enjoy. And we'll do. And I mentioned, you know, how open Stephen was during the interview. We talked. We we weaved back and forth through uh, bare naked ladies conversation, his solo career, getting started. You know, all of this stuff. You know that we like to uh, find out about um, his career and you know and i mean what was you know really cool was i mean he kind of took the words out of my mouth about um about how it kind of felt uh you know what it was like to separate from the bare naked ladies Mm -hmm. uh he used the word divorce and as i was kind of preparing in caps i put the word divorce in in my notes because i you know i have experienced a divorce Mm -hmm. and i know the feeling and you know and it's a little different because i have kids so I don't get to be free of the, you know, the, uh, the ex completely or what have you, but right. for, for that, there's no kids involved, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's just feelings and separation and moving on with, with your life. Right, right, right. And, um, and they, he reunited with the band for the first time in nine years, uh, earlier this year, uh, when he played the Juno awards, um, you know, and they were inducted in the, uh, Canadian music hall of fame. Mm. And so he talked about that, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, and he's not ruling out ever doing it again or anything mm. like that, but they're on different pages now and, you know, maybe slightly more amicable. Mm. Right? So I thought that was kind of cool. That's good. You know, there are so many horror stories about, you know, what happens to bands or what happens to certain people, um, you know, if, if the band splits up or if there are, you know, certain members that, you know, leave the band under terms that are really quite... Um, stressful, uh, you know, but ha- having a, some sort of reunification, um, and you know, having um, what am I trying to say? Being able to overcome your differences, yeah, right, and 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 move on, and you know, being mature about whatever you know bullshit happened in the past, and coming together, and you know. Overcoming one's differences is really, really nice to see. It is. And in realizing that you're a part of something that's bigger mm-hmm. than you. Right. Bigger than these feelings and whatever kind of led to this separation. Yeah. Right? You yeah, know, yeah. like we said, millions and millions of people bought these albums. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, he's not 
he was very much a part of that band, you know, that that existed when um, they purchased the albums, mm-hmm. right? Him and Ed Robinson were the lead singers. They were the backbone of the band. They do, did the writing. They mm-hmm. did. They both did the vocals together. He, if uh, if anything, he was slightly more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the vocal side um, with the band than than Ed Robertson. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, being able to say, okay, you know, we're we're not at the same place we were, you know, before, but, um, but we can overcome this and we can, you know, we can put that aside even temporarily mm. and get along, uh, you know, a mm. little bit. and yeah. that's kind of, you know, again, for my relationship with my ex-wife, kind of how it is, because I have to do that. I do that for the kids, mm. you know, I mean, we get along, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're okay. We're not going to go hang out and go see a movie together or, or anything like that, right. you know, unless the kids are there or something, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, we get along for the kids. We can be in the same space. We are united in the front of, you know, we're part of something that's bigger than us, mm. our kids Yeah, and, uh, and wanting to raise them well. Yeah. And, and so I think for bands that can see that and do that and, even sometimes I think that's really big. Yeah, that's massive. You know, on the flip side of that, we've got people that only communicate with the other party through their lawyers or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, how awful oh, is that? I know, yeah. I've, and expensive. I know. I'm, I'm aware of some messy <laughs> Really messy. Yeah. They yeah. are not clean, and mine's about as clean as it can be. So yeah. it's, uh, it's good. All right. Cheers to overcoming differences. Cheers. Hey. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's let's play one more song from uh, Stephen Page here from his uh, show at Harlow's. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll play, you know, a little bare naked ladies gem at the end of the show. But we're going to play another one of Steve's uh, Stephen's solo songs. Um, and this is There's a Melody 2. <laughs>
that was There's a Melody 2 by Stephen Page here on Concert Pipeline. And Jens, we've come to the point of the podcast where uh, we are going to present some useful information to our music fans. What is it? Well, it is time to introduce some music news. Thought you fell asleep there for a second. <laughs> I did. I nodded off just for a moment. <laughs> just because this article that I'm going to present is just so damn exciting. I can't oh. wait. Ooh, I'm on the edge of my seat. But let me share an exciting one first, okay? So, and this is about some stones that keep on rolling. They are the Rolling Stones. And, uh, um, and so they, they're bringing their no-filter tour to the U.S. stadiums in 2019. Well, that's the name of it? No Filter? Yeah. Uh, oh, so they're going to do some extra swearing or something? Uh, they might. Throw, like, don't bring your kids. Not, I mean, they're they're from Eng- the Rolling Stones. Are they from England? Yes. Okay, so they might throw a you know a hard c word on there. Or, uh, Probably, but, it, but it's not really a curse word in England as much as it is here, right? I don't know. That is a fantastic question. It's, it's almost a term of endearment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I go that far. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe in certain you know neighborhoods. Uh, I just have a feeling like you know the English curse a lot more than the Americans do. Uh, might not be true, but their curses are definitely, I think, um, expressed better, and they have just better words. You know, like bollocks and yes stuff. I mean, and their yeah, fantastic. and their tone. You know, their their accent is. Much more, more proper. Yes, much more know, dignified. Dignified, that's the word I'm looking for. Yes. Uh, and I'm the person that can never come up with the right words, but hey, I got, got dignified. You, you got the word I was going for there, so thank you. Uh, yeah, and so it's a 13-show tour, Jens. And, uh, nice. Starts in Miami, wraps up in uh, Chicago. Um, tickets are in sale this, this weekend. It's They're going to play stadiums. Obviously, some big, big ass shows. I think they're going to be in San Jose, right? Um, actually, so the show that they're going to be playing is, uh, yeah, oh yeah, at Levi Stadium. Levi Stadium, yeah. yeah. I was thinking about going to that, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that the nosebleed seats are going to be at least three hundred and fifty oh, bucks. It's it's going to be. I mean, it's not going to be cheap. No. Like, see, I tell you, like I don't pl- I don't go to a ton of the big shows because they're just really freaking expensive, and they're usually bands that I don't feel this urge to see or the value for because that's just not my thing i like smaller shows more intimate and with bands that are more in the line Mm. of what i what i seek out you Mm. know i mean i'll I'll go to one once in a while but just i don't go to a ton of big ass stadium shows or or arena shows for that reason um yeah you know and i can't stand san jose i'm not a fan of that place for several reasons one it's just so damn far away and it takes it's, well, it's not that it's far, but it's just, it's such a pain in the ass to get to. You know, it's not like... Think of how hard it is to get there from England. Oh, no shit. <laughs> I shouldn't even be complaining, right? These people are flying all the way to England so that I have a chance to see them, and I'm bitching about like a two and a half hour commute through San Francisco. And blah, blah. Yeah, thanks for putting things into perspective, and I feel bad and selfish. So, and this is their first extended run of shows in the U.S. since 2015's Zip Code Tour. Uh, I mean, they've played a couple of one-off shows in like Indio and Vegas uh, and a couple of private shows, but this is their, their first show. So, um, and, you know, again, it's a small tour of 13 shows and one is, you know, two hours or less uh, away, right? And so, 
you know, they always are going to play Satisfaction, Give Me Shelter, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, um, you know, things like uh, like that. They've uh, released a blues-covered record, uh, Blue and Lonesome, in 2016, and have re- reportedly been working on original material over the past couple of years, uh, but no word about a new record. Any word that they're going to play Honky Tonk Woman? Uh, you never know. Okay. You never know. Keep you. You hold on to that thought. And, All right. And fingers crossed. Yeah. So there, Charlie Watts uh, or Mick, Mick Jagger, excuse me, said that he never uh, thinks about stopping. He uh, he thinks about what the next tour is, uh, and he's not thinking about retirement. So, it's uh, yeah, May eighteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not thinking about retirement, but sometimes. It's not in the thoughts about, you know, sometimes your body retires for you, if you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. And I was perusing the headlines uh, yesterday in the parking lot while I was, uh, before I went into the gym to do my workout, which I haven't done in like six months. It was amazing. Yay! I made it to the gym. I wasn't going to stop you there, by the way. Yeah. So so there I was just kind of perusing the news. And uh, there was, you know, a headline about, you know, bands or band members that have you know, fainted or had medical issues or died, you know, while performing. And I think the Rolling Stones fits into that category. Like I wouldn't be surprised if their last day on earth was on stage. Yeah. And just all of them, all of them, like, <laughs> boom, they're 120 years old. Or they're like, oh, you know, the drugs finally kick in, uh, you know, the cocaine abuse or whatever, you know, dead. Couldn't handle it anymore. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that could happen. Like, you never know. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but they're one of those bands who's playing till the end, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I feel like I really want to see them. I mean, I've seen them before. This is the stupid thing. I've yeah. seen them before. You have. I haven't. So. You haven't. I've seen them before. This was a while ago. I mean, this was... Um, oh, I know exactly when this was. This was the day before I bought my house in Auburn. Okay. So this was in 2007. And they played in Oakland. Uh-huh. Uh, in the stadium, I think. Or was it at the arena? I don't remember. Sure. I was so freaking drunk. I mean, I'm usually not somebody who gets intoxicated in public and makes a fool out of myself, but yeah. we were just telling, we were just talking about our friend, Tony, right? You went to his uh, Thanksgiving party. Yeah. So uh, his, his, I accidentally like, we went to the concert. It was me and him and a bunch of other people, including his ex-wife. And I accidentally like fell on top of her while we were trying to like get to our oh, seats Okay. and I couldn't get back up. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I was like stuck in between these seats and I'm like, Oh my God, Jerry, I'm so sorry. I'm like trying to get up. And that's the last thing I remember. I don't even remember going home. Wow, you just remember falling. Uh, that's it. Like I, I remember the first song, and I, I don't remember anything else about the show. So, I um, you know, my fault. You know, note to self: if you're going to spend a lot of money, you know, for a concert, make sure to try and remember it. Try to fucking remember it. I mean, obviously, I had a, an awesome time, yeah. but uh, I don't remember a damn thing. All right. Okay. So you so you want to go see them again? And so I want to go relive it. Yes, and be you know, in full, be fully conscious the whole time. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, good luck with that. I, and I'm sure I'll, it's going to be twice as expensive. I'll probably pass. Yeah. So, yeah. Just saying. So. Uh, yeah. All right. Are you ready for my awesome? I'm ready for your awesome story. Okay. So talking about concerts, uh, we have a concert that. Uh, has been canceled. Mumford and Sons. Uh-oh. They reschedule canceled UK tour dates. Okay. 
All right, so what's going on with this? So the band was forced to push back the dates due to technical difficulties. Okay, so this isn't like somebody's sick. I know, and that's why I was interested in this story and wanted to, you know, to talk about it a little bit, right? Yeah. We've had a couple of, uh, I mean, there's been some talk in the news. I think we had, um, and I apologize if this is a story that you're going to bring up, but we had... Mm, Axl Rose was sick, right? Crazy sick. Okay. Um, uh, in Abu Dhabi. Did you hear about this? No, no, but um, we might talk about it next we week. We might talk about it next week. Okay, so anyway. Um, so, But this isn't that. I mean, this is like... Uh, they had to. They were forced to push back stuff because of technical uh, technical difficulties, um, and, tech, and and the technical part is huge. It's huge. We just interviewed a band um, in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they were telling us about how they weren't able to hear themselves while they while they were performing. Right. Right. Yeah. So they're just kind of you know winging it and doing the best they can, yeah. hoping that the audience can hear them clearly. <laughs> but this is even a little different. Than but this that, is different. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. So um, so Mumford and Sons they've announced. Uh, the rescheduled date for the two, uh, for the four UK shows they were forced to postpone following, quote, unforeseen logistical and technical challenges. Mm, okay. Unquote. The band kicked off the tour in Dublin on Friday um, to launch new album Delta, where they were debuted, uh, where they debuted a stage described... What am I talking about? Uh, where they debuted, sorry, <laughs> where they debuted a new stage described the band as groundbreaking. So this is this is a really big ass stage setup that they got going on, and they're setting that bar really high, whatever it is, and they don't want to bring the show without this big ass stage setup. Um, gotcha. So this is like a huge feast for the eyes. Yeah. All right. Um. So, posting on the band's official Twitter account, they shared a statement explaining that they would reschedule dates in Liverpool, Cardiff, Sheffield, Sheff, Sheffield, yes, and Manchester uh, to some point in 2019. They have now confirmed the shows will go ahead in June. So this is this is huge. Yeah, there are definitely some. Um, you know, some big bands that come around that put a lot of effort into the whole visuals, you know, and I think that Iron Maiden is probably going to be like yeah, this too yeah, sure. when they come but, through. But seriously, like, I don't, like, people plan trips around concerts, people, but you know, invest in the tickets and take mm-hmm. time off work, and right. whatever their circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. And for you to say, you know, actually, we're you just for all the bling bling, we're gonna cancel the show, or it's not gonna, we're not gonna do it. Well, we, it'll be hap- it'll happen sometime in like nine months or something. Right. Like, it's just mind boggling to me. It's like to me, no, you know, you got to pull your head out of your ass a little mm-hmm. bit and say if if that's if it's that important, right? Mm-hmm. I get it. I get a sickness. You can't sing. Uh, you know, you don't mm-hmm. have any voice. Right. Those are things that are unpreventable and mm-hmm. and are really gonna impact the show. But mm-hmm. in terms of uh, a stage show and all the extra stuff. I think you gotta just say, okay, this is important to us. We'll, you know, it's so important to us to to do that that we will um, still play the show that we've um, we've done. You know, set. It, however you do it, you can do it acoustic, whatever you know, whatever, and uh, and we'll give you a free ticket to the uh, the show next time. You know, yeah. for, for the inconvenience, so you get mm. to see the experience that we had planned for. Right. You. That That's I like what, that. 
That's customer service. I like that. That's <laughs> going above yeah. and beyond, like big time. Yeah. It, it, and I mean, it, and I just don't think you should screw with everybody who's bought tickets mm-hmm. just for some stage setup stuff. Yeah. Which is obviously, I mean, it would be cool, mm-hmm. but people look forward to this stuff for so long and then you're just like, nah, we're not ready because, yeah. because we want to really do this amazing thing. It's like have a plan B, right? So yeah. if, if you're, t- if you're, if the technical piece of your performance is fucked, have a plan B, you know, do an incredible acoustic set or something, yeah. <laughs> you know, do a little bit different. And, and, and we had another experience of that. Like, um, this doesn't have anything to do with music, but it does have to do with, you know, big performances. And that was, um, the uh, the Super Bowl, oh, not I'm sorry, not Super Bowl. The uh, oh my God, was it Monday Night Football or Thursday Night Football? Anyway, it was the, it was the football game in Mexico, and they canceled that because the turf wasn't up to par. Oh my God! So they had to play in L.A. or something. But there were so many people that flew to Mexico City because they already had their you know just like you said they had their uh, uh, airline tickets scheduled. They had their um, you know, hotels scheduled, they had, you know, different trips and stuff, you know, planned out and they didn't want to lose all of that because so much of it was non-refundable. They went anyway and they watched the game on television from Mexico city, you know, that was happening in, in LA. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, I thought that was, I, that was my two cents on that situation. I hear you. And, and yeah. you know, I, I think they did it wrong. Yeah. Just kind of moving it back nine months because yeah. of a stage setup. So, right. Um, who a band that from a band that didn't do it right to a band that I, that is Metallica is uh, donating a hundred thousand dollars to California wildlife relief eff- efforts. Oh, good for them! Uh, wildfire, excuse me. Uh, and uh, they made the gesture through its uh, all within my hands nonprofit foundation, which was launched in 2017 to create help create sustainable communities by tackling the issues of hunger and uh, workforce education and encouraging volunteerism. Um, and so they say, sadly, once again, communities in California are experiencing historically devastating wildfires in both the northern and southern parts of the state. All Within My Hands has made a $50,000 donation to each uh, North Valley Community Foundation and the Los Angeles Fire Department Foundation. Both agencies provide service to victims at evacuation centers uh, and other much-needed relief. Uh, And they encourage everybody to support uh, those in need and our first responders in any way we can by donating money, non-perishable food, any other supplies, or giving your time and volunteering, or providing temporary housing. Every little bit helps. Um... What's that cause? And we're starting to come out of the woods. We've gotten some rain, uh, you know, recently, which I think has done wonders. Mm. But, but there's, you know, still a lot to go. And a lot of people are out of their homes. I mean, yeah. Paradise is flattened like mm-hmm. the town of Paradise. It's like gone. It's, there's, there's a lot of people that have been, their lives have been ramshackled. And a lot that made it out okay, but homes mm. are gone and everything. And mm-hmm. so. Yeah, I mean, people's homes are gone. People's memories of... You know, of the, of growing up in paradise and, you know, all these childhood events are still, you know, alive and well in people's memories. But those places just don't exist any longer. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. And the same thing for, you know, northern and southern. We've had a lot of uh, devastation in Southern California, too. So it's great. You know, it's really nice to, to, to read these stories about, um, you know, about, you um, um, you know, people or bands or organizations that, 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 that come forward and, you know, make these donations and help out. Yeah. So 
give give what you can just support however you can good thoughts to everybody out there who's affected absolutely you got a story first Jens Steve yes how good is your Mariah Carey voice Uh, on a scale of one to ten on a scale of just ten about a zero (laughs) (laughs) not not happening so you're not willing to do nope an acoustic version of All I Want Is You for Christmas. No, I will do neither an acoustic or a plugged-in version. How about a version of All I Want for Christmas Is You? How about that? No. Well, fuck, man. Okay, well, Mariah Carey isn't going to play that either, apparently, uh, this year. And I seem to remember something about that song. Uh, although I don't remember the details. But anyway, uh, Mariah Carey has a rule when it comes to singing her famous track. What is that rule? Well, uh, she's revealed that she has a rule when it comes to performing her iconic Christmas track, All I Want for Christmas Is You. Uh, She appeared recently on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon um, over this weekend and explained that since she spends most of the Christmas season singing the song, she won't hear or sing it until after Thanksgiving is over. Mm, okay, that's a, a good rule. So Thanksgiving's over now, so we can hopefully hear it soon. Then I hope not. Okay, um, I'm so so I'm like, okay, why is this news? I like don't care about the song. Yeah. Um, uh, so she added, uh, I have this rule where I try to get through Thanksgiving. I don't like it when people rush it because once I start, I don't stop until after New Year. Mm, that's. Rough to have to keep doing something that you, people pay you an astronomical amount of money for, right? So is she talking about like eating turkey? Like she she likes yeah. to rush eating turkey and then not stopping until after New Year. <laughs> yes. uh, anyway, yeah. uh, this song is um, yeah. I could do without ever hearing it again. Uh, well, we won't be playing it. So okay, so, so that's, that's fair enough. So is she saying that she's not going to play it at all, or just not until like after Thanksgiving, which no, is now? No, I mean she she just doesn't want to start too early. I think is what I get from that. So, um, so she doesn't want to make extra money off of. Yeah, it, it, I think the song drives her as batshit crazy as it does everybody else. So yeah, uh, well, I can see the point. I mean, it's nice just in in concept. It's nice not to have it's nice not to have christmas be a thing until after thanksgiving you know it's like yeah. oh no trust me i don't want any part of that until thanksgiving's over so yeah i mean it's annoying enough going to the store to buy a thanksgiving turkey yeah. and then you see all this fucking christmas shit everywhere it's like no i don't want to see this no no so okay <laughs> it's like bring out the easter stuff why don't you we're not bringing it but we will play a couple of christmas songs in the next episode of concert pipeline we'll get there so all right uh we're gonna get into the season but just not yet uh um, winding out our music news, Jens, um, song, I mean, a story about Dave Grohl, uh, and yes, it's a small story, but no episode of concert pipeline is complete without a story about Dave Grohl. Well, uh, since you say that the Foo Fighters are to take a break. Um, what? No. And, uh, he said that they're going to take a break after their current tour, but, uh, already have an idea of what's, uh, what shape the next album will, will take. So. It probably won't be a long break. They're probably going to get back into the studio and uh, and get uh, get working on some new music. Um, their latest album, Concrete and Gold, was released in 2017. 
uh, lots of festivals and stadium shows after that. And he said, once their live commitments are complete, you won't be seeing them for a while. He says, it's a challenge, you know. Uh, You kind of set these goals for yourself to see if you can do it again. Even when you're crawling to the finish line, uh, you know that it's there. Uh, So here we are at the last set of shows we've been on for uh, a year and a half, and I'm ready to take a break, but I'm ready to do it again at some point. He just wants a breather. He said, when we start making records, it's almost like I don't hear the song uh, as much as I can see them in my head. So I don't read music. I see music in kind of shapes and patterns. uh, So uh, I can see the next record. I know there is another one there. I don't know when, but I think I know uh, what we should do. We've been lucky. We've had this lightning rod that we followed for fucking 24 years uh, uh, or whatever, and it takes us where we think we should go. So, and also rumors that Adele could be featured on the next Foo Fighters album since she was unable to appear on Concrete and Gold. Did you say Adele? Adele, yes. Well, um, Foo Fighters, do what you got to do. It's yeah. hard. It's hard to accept that you know, you're going to be taking a break, but it's fully understandable that that's necessary. We'll let it pass. We'll let it pass. As long as he, Dave Grohl keeps doing things that yes, in the music news. exactly. Right? As long as you keep on doing funny shit on the side yeah. or awesome shit on the side or whatever, you know, to keep us in the loop, you know, we want the heartbeat there. Um, but do what you got to do in order to make the visualization of that next album uh, come down and be a concrete mass of wonderfulness a concrete and gold mass of wonderment yeah beautiful yes. well yes. said uh-huh. very poetic all right well that's our show for today Jens. uh yeah so we're gonna wind this out next time on the podcast uh we're gonna have paul nelson he's been on the uh, program before uh and we're gonna have him on again as well as a couple of his uh christmas songs that he's he's done we're gonna get in the spirit Jens. it'll be december and we're gonna be ready to to play a couple of christmas songs. are we gonna dress up while we do this i can't promise that it'll like happen, santa's so. elves or no, i don't think that's happening but uh, that's the closest we'll get to being in this season, I think. Uh, well, how about how about this? We'll just we'll be really we'll be basic, right? We're not going to overdo it. We'll just wear a bunch of red and green shit, yeah. and we'll wrap multicolored Christmas lights around each other. Okay, yeah, yeah. our audience will be able to visit, visualize that. Yes, so that sounds great. They so. can visualize that. So uh, we're going to close this out with uh, one more song from Stephen Page's show. Um, this is a cover of Bare Naked Ladies song "War on Drugs." By Stephen Page. Uh, and for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, that's Jen Shippel. And that is Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> she likes to sleep with the radio So she can dream of a favorite song one that no one has ever sung since she was small. She'll never know that she made it up. She had a soul that created, blown away like a paper cup. Music falls. Back. He took her heart.
find love in a hole It takes more than fucking someone To keep yourself warm Shrug it off. 